episodes drop the last Monday. It's a man, it's a man, forgot that. It's a man, it's a man, forgot that. It's a man, it's a man, forgot that. Hey, you're listening to the Matt Forgot That Podcast, the place to recollect and reminisce. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to rewatch and review a movie or TV pilot that I've seen before but don't quite remember. It could be a blockbuster, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattForgotThat on social. Before we start, this week's movie was produced by the Canon Group, which during the mid-80s was at the heights of its popularity and influence. When you saw that Silver Sea logo with the arrow, you knew that it might not necessarily be a great movie, but it was certainly going to be an entertaining one. From its founding in 1967, it went through a litany of ownership groups with varying degrees of success. Three of their releases earned Oscar nominations, Joe in 1970, Runaway Train in 1985, and Street Smart in 1987. The Assault won the Best Foreign Language Film at the 1987 Academy Awards. In 1979, Israeli filmmakers and cousins Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus took over the studio. They found a niche with action and martial arts films, Enter the Dragon, Death Wish 2, Ten to Midnight, Hercules, Missing in Action, Invasion USA, American Ninja, Cobra, but also ventured into other genres and stories that were often overlooked by major studios, musicals, Break-In and Break-In 2, Electric Boogaloo, raunchy comedies, The Last American Virgin, and erotic dramas, The Apple, Lady Chatterley's Lover, and Nana. And how can we leave off the Masters of the Universe adaptation? Though I'm sure some of us would like to. They also own the rights to Spider-Man, though no films came to fruition at that time. It's a fascinating story of an independent studio that rose to prominence, and if you're interested in its history, I have a couple of recommendations. The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1, 1980-1984, and Volume 2, 1985-1987, by Austin Trunick. It's the best in-depth reference with interviews and anecdotes from the filmmakers, actors, and crew members involved. And there are two documentaries, Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films, and The Go-Go Boys, The Inside Story of Canon Films. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It, two stars Watch at Your Own Risk, three stars Standard Fair, four stars Worth Checking Out, and five stars Must See. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. In this episode of the podcast, I'm rewatching and reviewing The Delta Force from 1986. It was directed by Menahem Golan, who helmed Enter the Dragon, Over the Top, Over the Brooklyn Bridge, and Final Combat. His film The Apple was referenced in an episode of Glow. The screenplay was written by James Brunner, who scribed Mission in Action, Invasion USA, POW The Escape, and Braddock Missing in Action 3. This is what I remember. The film was inspired by the hijacking of TWA Flight 847 in 1985. 
The special ops team featured in the film was based on the real U.S. Army Delta Force Squadron. The movie stars Chuck Norris as Major Scott McCoy. He was born in Ryan, Oklahoma. His parents divorced when he was 16 and moved with his mom to Kansas before settling in California. He was an air policeman in the United States Air Force and was based in South Korea where he started to train in martial arts. After his service, he opened up a martial arts studio and entered in competitions where he met Bruce Lee, who was starring in The Green Hornet as Kato. He casted Chuck as an antagonist in Way of the Dragon, which opened up many doors. He would go on to become a huge action star in movies like Lone Wolf McQuaid, Missing in Action, Invasion USA, Firewalker, Sidekicks, and Top Dog, as well as a starring role in Walker, Texas Ranger, which ran for eight seasons, 196 episodes, from 1993 to 2001. I've only bought two items off the TV. One was the Lethal Weapon Legacy, which actually inspired me to become a screenwriter and The Total Gym, which Christy Brinkley and Chuck Norris are spokespeople for. Lee Marvin portrays Colonel Nick Alexander. In reality, he did enlist in the United States Marine Corps and was wounded in the Battle of Sapan, earning him a Purple Heart. When he returned from his service, he worked as part of the crew at a local theater company in upstate New York. After a cast member felt under the weather, he filled in for the role, and that would be the start of a long career in acting. From 1957 to 1960, he appeared as Frank Ballinger in M-Squad. He won an Oscar at the 1966 Academy Awards for Best Actor in a Leading Role for Cat Ballou. The Delta Force would be his final film appearance. Now I'm heading off to watch the movie. This is what I forgot. The film begins on April 25th, 1980 in Iran, where an attempt to rescue the American hostages held in Tehran ended with a United States helicopter crashing. A top-secret anti-terrorist special ops group known as Delta Force is dropped in. When a soldier named Peterson is trapped within the remains of the chopper, Captain Scott McCoy defies orders by Colonel Nick Alexander and goes in to save him. As the colonel is ready to instruct the pilot to take off, McCoy emerges from the flames with Peterson on his back. Alexander and McCoy talk about their frustrations with the mission. They advise the higher-ups that it was too dangerous to launch the operation at night, but forces in the government thought their plan was better. McCoy spent five years in Vietnam bearing witness to their type of planning, and announces that he's gonna resign when they get back. Five years later, on July 19, 1985, in Athens, Greece, American Travelways Flight 282 is boarding at Gate 11, flying to New York via Rome. We're introduced to a few passengers, Sylvia and Harry Goldman, who are celebrating their silver wedding anniversary, Edie and Ben Kaplan, who are on a trip with their daughter Deborah, her husband Robert, and their daughter Ellen. While in the air to Rome, Lebanese terrorists from the New World Revolutionary Organization hijack the airplane and instruct that it be rerouted to Beirut. The pilot, Roger Campbell, presses a button alerting the air traffic control tower of the hijack, who call the American embassy. The alert reaches the President of the United States, who orders to deploy the Delta Force into the area. General Woodbridge, the Army Chief of Staff, contacts Colonel Nick Alexander at Fort Bragg to work out the emergency rescue operation. In Fayetteville, North Carolina, Scott McCoy hears of the hijack on the news and arrives at Pope Air Force Base to volunteer to be part of the mission. Here's a quote without context. Sleep tight, sucker. 
The Delta Force is an effective suspense film. Sure, its main focus are the action set pieces, but the amount of tension that was created during the hijack sequences worked at a visceral level. There was one scene where the terrorists wanted all Israelis identified and sequestered, which was truly horrific and emotionally effective. There was a solid supporting cast of many recognizable faces for the time period. George Kennedy from The Naked Gun in Dallas portrayed Father William O'Malley. One of the nuns from his parish, Sister Mary, is acted by Kim Delaney of NYPD Blue fame. The Goldmans were portrayed by Joey Bishop, actor, singer, host, and member of the Rat Pack, and Lainey Kazan, best known for her role in My Big Fat Greek Wedding. The Kaplans are performed by Martin Balsam, Tony and Academy Award winner who appeared in 12 Angry Men, and the great Shelley Winters, whose credits include The Poseidon Adventure, Alfie, The Diary of Anne Frank, Pete's Dragon, and the sitcom Roseanne. Robert Vaughn, who appeared in The Magnificent Seven, Bullet, and The Towering Inferno, plays General Woodbridge. Keep your eyes peeled and you might see Liam Neeson, who has an uncredited role as a Delta Force member. While I enjoyed it, there were a few questionable scenes. In the opening teaser, the soldiers said that they couldn't get to Peterson because the flames are too high, but Chuck had no problem getting through the fire. Add to the fact that there was literally an opening with nothing impeding it right on the other side. I understand they're trying to make McCoy seem like a super soldier, but it was kinda at the expense of the other team members. Now for a little trivial trivia. There are four Academy Award winners in the cast. Lee Marvin, Martin Balsam, George Kennedy, and Shelley Winters, and two nominees, Robert Vaughn and Robert Forster. The cinematography was captured by David Gerfinkel, whose filmography includes Back to the Future, Flight of the Navigator, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Abyss, Forrest Gump, Avengers Endgame, and the Robert Zemeckis-directed Pinocchio. It was very well shot, and I think the looks hold up to today's standards, Maybe slightly dated, but with a good 4K transfer, it would be just fine. It was edited by Alan Jukabowicz, who worked on The Apple, Invaders from Mars, Alan Quatermain and the Lost City of Gold, and Penitentiary 3. The score was composed by Alan Silvestri, who wrote the music for Back to the Future, Summer Rental, Overboard, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Abyss, Soap Dish, and most recently, Pinocchio. It was composed solely on synthesizers, out of necessity. There wasn't much budget left to hire a full orchestra, so Silvestri had to improvise. The music was so effective that ABC Sports used it as part of their intro to Indianapolis 500 coverage, from 1988 to 1998. The runtime is 2 hours 5 minutes. I know I complain a lot about runtimes, and a little over 2 hours is tolerable, but only when it doesn't feel it, and this one did. I would have preferred a tight 140 or 150. It had a budget of $9 million and grossed almost $18 million at the box office. There were two sequels, Delta Force 2, The Columbian Connection, and Delta Force 3, The Killing Game. The latter didn't star Chuck Norris. It was parodied by Larry the Cable Guy in Delta Farce. I give it 3.5 out of 5 stars. It's probably Chuck Norris's best movie, though I am partial to sidekicks. Maybe it's his best action movie. Take off a star if you're offended by toxic masculinity. This one's dripping with it. Add half a star if you're into that sort of thing. If you've seen the Delta Force and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattForgotThat. Moving right along, I'm going to end each podcast with clips that you might have forgotten. It could be movie trailers, music videos, commercials, or something completely random. 
Search for my YouTube page and there'll be a playlist called Matt Forgot That Playback. Today I'm talking about Sequest DSV. It was created by Rockney S. O'Bannon, who also created the series Alien Nation, based on his original screenplay, Farscape, Cult, and Developed Defiance. The first season was set in the year 2018. Civilization has been forced to live underwater, where Earth's remaining natural resources are on the ocean floor. The United Earth Oceans Organization was created to defend and protect these newly formed colonies. It originally starred Roy Scheider, which instantly led credibility to the series. He portrayed Captain Nathan Bridger, who was responsible for designing the Deep Submergence Vehicle, aka DSV, which he returns from retirement to command. Jonathan Brandis plays Lucas Wollenzak, a teenage savant who invented a device which allowed a dolphin named Darwin to speak with humans. The voice of Darwin was provided by Frank Weller, legendary actor whose characters include Megatron from Transformers, Garfield on The Garfield Show, Astro on The Jetsons, Dr. Claw on Inspector Gadget, Nibbler on Futurama, and many, many others. The main cast was rounded out by Ted Raimi, brother of director Sam, as Lieutenant Tim O'Neill, and Don Franklin as Commander Jonathan Ford. Each season would be on the verge of cancellation before being renewed. That shouldn't reflect poorly on the series. It did very well in the 1835 demographic. There was also cast turnover and storyline reinvention, with focus shifting away from ecological subjects and more towards science fiction elements. The third season would see Roy Scheider leave, being replaced by Michael Ironside, and the show renamed Sequest 2032, making a time jump to ten years later. I've been re-watching the series recently, and the special effects were impressive and still hold up today. Many people thought Darwin the Dolphin was real, but it was an animatronic created by Walt Conti, who worked on The Abyss and Free Willy. John Debney composed the original theme music, winning a Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Main Title Theme Music in 1994. He would write all Season 1 music. In Season 2, Don Davis took over the duties and won a Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Music Composition for a Series in 1995. Sequest DVS was produced by Steven Spielberg and Amblin Television. It was on for three seasons, 57 episodes, from 1993 to 1996. I've selected a few clips from the series, which will be featured in the Matt Forgot That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. That's all for this edition of Matt Forgot That. Thanks for listening to me reminisce. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed, or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattForgotThat on social. Head over to MattSarosky.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for the rewatch and review. While in the air to Rome, Lebanese terrorists from the New World Revolution, oh boy, and erotic dramas, the Apple, later Chatterley's, who? While in the air to Rome, Lebanese terrorists from the New World Order, (sighs) if you enjoyed this episode of the Matt Forgot That podcast, make sure to subscribe to the Matt Watch That podcast for all the reviews, rants, and randomness.